Welcome to The Book Podcast, where we discuss books about the book, the Bible, with your hosts, Scott Moffitt, Gabriel Penfield, and Gary Karwaski. Are you confused about what the Bible teaches about divorce and remarriage? You're not alone, for divorce is one of the most misunderstood topics in the Bible. Some even go so far as to argue that divorce is the unpardonable sin, really. Yet others will assert that a forgiving God will always forgive a divorce and subsequent remarriage. Others say that God never forgives because God hates divorce. On the other hand, many insist that divorce is just another one of the innumerable sins that human beings commit and that God is forgiving God and obliged to pardon once confessed. Today, we will begin our examination with a look at the Old Testament and the Gospels. Hopefully, we will gain some insight into what God meant when he said, I hate divorce. Let me begin by sharing my experience. I I was saved as a young boy in brigades around 10 years of age. And uh, then upon my discharge from the Navy, I met the woman who would become my wife. She was in the process of going through a divorce. I knew zero about what the Bible said about the issues of divorce and remarriage. Truthfully, I didn't give it a thought, nor did I care. My wife had been a Lutheran in theory, and she didn't know or care about what the Bible taught about the issue either. However, after marriage, we began to attend a Bible church where our interest was piqued in biblical truth. As I began to have thoughts of a biblical education, I was introduced to the harsh reality of the church and how it dealt with divorcees. Many well-meaning people told me that I was not qualified to attend Bible school, let alone seminary. Others said that I could never be in church leadership. Thankfully, I didn't listen nor heed the counsel that I was given. Eventually, I did attend Dallas Seminary, which is where I met our author for today, Bill Health. Welcome, Bill. Hey, thanks, uh, Scott. It's been a long time, but it's great to see you. That's right. Bill tutored me in baby Greek while I was Mm. at DTS, and we attended the same church. Yes. While at Garland Bible Fellowship, Bill and I served together. And I believe Gary attended there at uh, some point in the future uh, of our time at GDF. Right. And we worked together, Bill and I did, in the Iwana Clubs. Amen. Now, yep. Bill, I still haven't been able to get out of my head, and I looked for the tape, but I couldn't find it. The image of you being one of the Ghostbusters in our parents' program, putting on the hits. Do you remember that? I don't. I clearly remember you with a vacuum cleaner on your back, getting all the ghosts and singing the song. If there's something strange in the neighborhood, who are you going to call? Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters. And if there's something weird and it don't look good, who are you going to call? Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters. I don't remember. Oh, good thing. I wouldn't want to remember it either, Bill. (laughs) So my question prompted by that is this. Are we to call you Dr. William Heth or Dr. Peter Beckman today? 
I don't know what that who the latter one. He was, was the character you were playing. <laughs> oh, okay. I didn't know that. Just call me Bill. Yeah. Now I read uh, your book way back in 1984, Jesus and Divorce. I believe yeah. this is the European copy. That is. And this is the. Uh, this is the. Yes. And this the, is the American that's the one copy. I've that's the one I've done. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah. then this is another book that you added to Divorce and Remarriage for views of it mm -hmm. and yeah. um so we're going to talk a little bit about those but more we're going to talk about the pdf that you sent me which was an article from i believe i know it's not galaxy software i can't ets yes yeah the southern baptist theological journal okay yeah um, and, and i wanted to share this with you um about the book jesus and divorce the problem with the evangelical consensus mm. Uh, which you co-authored, by the way, with Gordon Wenham, a British yes. theologian. Mm -hmm. I looked online for some help, and I found the following website, A Cry for Justice, which was answering a question by an MB MBI student about your book. And the author wrote, the betrothal view is one the one argued in Jesus and Divorce by Gordon Wenham and William Heth. Many people have been persuaded by that book. Most of them are not aware that Bill Heth later changed his mind twice. Bill, have you changed your mind twice on this issue? At least once and probably about the third, but I never defended the betrothal view in that book. I defended the early church fathers. Right, right. right. So we get into the reasons why you have a, had a change of mind. and yeah. um, But let me first share with you what the MBI student's response was to her comment. This oh. MBI student's mother was going through a horrendous divorce, and there was some you know difficulties with the husband and abuse and so on. He said this, I did read your review on Jesus and divorce, and I wonder how many people that have read this book have suffered because of it. That intrigued me because I wondered why people would suffer just from the opinion about someone expressed in a book, the author's view. And then in an Amazon section, I saw one person who wrote this. This book is very, very dangerous. It was first published in 1985 with two authors, Wenham and Heth. The only good thing about this edition is that William Heth is no longer even listed as a co-author. William Heth changed his mind on the doctrine of divorce some years after co-writing Jesus and Divorce. And um, Jesus and Divorce, uh, How I Changed My Mind, which was written by William Heth in a Southern Baptist Theological Journal, Spring 2002, brought this change. And he said that he now has embraced the evangelical consensus that divorce is allowed for adultery and for desertion of an unbeliever. Later, Heth, this person writes, changed his mind again to include in the grounds for divorce uh, would be a, um, abuse. I understand this partly because he um, wrote a forward to my to the book, David Intone Brewer's work, then uh, hath commended my book. And here's the commendation. Not under bondage is the name of the book. Maybe you remember it. Oh, this yes. Removed the scales from my eyes and brought me face to face with the plight of victims of abuse mm -hmm. who entered the marriage, promising to honor Jesus's command. These are your words, not to separate which God has joined together. Several years ago, you write, I changed my mind about the scope of this seemingly absolute prohibition, not under bondage. This book will yeah. help you wrestle through when and how you might be exempted from a marriage covenant that has been violated by various forms of abuse. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. she goes on to say, 
I submit this review in order to make it clear that the interpretation propounded in Jesus and divorce has been utterly disavowed by one of its authors. Okay. Wow. He was strong. Background. Yeah, that's just background to what people said. Okay. Bill, you have changed your mind from the book that you wrote with Wenham about divorce and remarriage and the um, reasons for it. Can you yes, explain yeah. that to us? Yeah. For we we did an updated version of it for Paternoster in I think it was '97, um, Jesus and Divorce updated edition, and I did my best. I was already having doubts in '97 about uh, the position we had taken, but being faithful uh, to Gordon and original book, I did my best to continue defending that position, but I was uncomfortable. And we put a lot more work into that updated edition of Jesus and Divorce. But then uh, as I was asked to contribute by Tom Triner to the Southern Baptist Theological Journal article, I went back and started researching all over again. And I ran into uh, one of the students and uh, one of one of the students uh, that I have since uh, been able to meet, Marriage as Covenant. He did this dissertation under Gordon Wenham, Gordon P. Hugenberger, Pastor Park Street Church, Boston. And on the third page in a footnote, uh, he noted how covenants are breakable. And I had been under the opinion that covenants were unbreakable. And I actually had a hot flash uh, when I read that footnote. Um, on page three. I also found a couple of errors in the book. He said uh, nobody else had ever found the errors. I read it uh, every note, every footnote throughout from beginning to end. And that was the first uh, question that I had. Then I went back and found that I had followed a Catholic author in one of my footnotes in Jesus of Divorce. And I understood, uh, the. of course, they do understand uh, the marriage covenant, the unbreakable, hence remarriage after divorce, any divorce, before the death of, death of a spouse would be to commit adultery. And I found that given that and what Wenham had taught about Leviticus 18, that the two shall become one flesh, that that seemed to indicate an almost um, uh, ontological, indissoluble bond was created. And I realized that that, that was not right. And um, just a couple of years ago, uh, a guy from England asked me to the forward to his book, Miracle Imagery in the Bible, and uh, done by Colin Hammer. And down here, it even says, There you go. <laughs> <laughs> and um, wrote the foreword to it. And Colin Hammer uh, pointed out that, that there's a difference between Adam and Eve's Genesis 2 24, 223, 224. Um, uh, indissoluble marriage and every marriage that came after that, or at least the pattern, the imagery that people use from the Adam and Eve, which we used heavily. And that marriages after that, it's going to be difficult for me to explain the whole thing now, um, were that, that, that that is not the pattern. And that the basic point that he made was that every covenant was a volitional and conditional covenant that had obligations. And if you violate those obligations, you break the covenant. So the question now becomes, what is it that um, violates or breaks a covenant, the covenant of marriage in particular? We probably can't get into this, but uh, Calvinists 
uh, and those who believe in the security of the believer in that new covenant uh, might want to press against the direction that I'm, I have gone. But that's a whole other theological question. Yeah, Bill, if I could just interject here. Um, when I think of covenant like that, I think of uh, the Hebrew word berit, and also the, the the Abrahamic covenant, where the animal you actually cut a covenant. Maybe we can talk about that a little bit. And the whole purpose of that is, if I break this covenant, which seems like it could be breakable, this is what will happen to me. So mm -hmm. how does that? It seems to me that that sort of fits in the covenantal idea, and then maybe the relationship with marriage. But it's it's pretty complex. Yeah, it is. And of course, there were conditional and unconditional covenants you know, made in the Old Testament. And the one that Abraham made, uh, God made with Abraham, where he put Abraham to sleep and uh, cut the animals apart himself and went down through in the fire pot. That was an unconditional covenant that indeed was extended through the Mosaic law and on into the, to the new covenant. And so perhaps that's where Calvinists could say, hey, that is unconditional. You, you trust in Christ for salvation. Um, he is, it's, it's not going to be, he loves me, he loves me not. You know the daisy view of salvation, right, right. and but it is it's it's solid, it's there, and so um, yeah, the other uh, blessings and curses for violation of the of covenants were there. Uh, I haven't thought in in great detail on how the blessings and curses might uh, be related to to people who violate uh, their marriage vows, their marriage covenants today, and the consequences of that. Uh, so don't ask me about that. I, I <laughs> Okay. I wanted to get something uh, out of the way really quick, something that um, I think bears on this. Uh, do you have any personal experiences like with your family or friends going through divorce that might have experienced your, that might have affected your change in view or, or that have nothing to do with it? Yeah, it really didn't. I have, I've done quite well in allowing, um, uh, not allowing personal uh, connections to impact me. Two of my colleagues at Taylor um, were divorced. One for, uh, uh, yeah, two of my colleagues there and and remarried. I'll go into to details of that. Yeah. And then the one case, uh, the um, his wife cheated on him, and um, he he's made a contribution to this marriage as a covenant as well. So he has a chapter in there, and then um, one of my sons experienced the the. Uh, the, the sadness of, of a marriage that was ended in divorce after 15 years. And fortunately, I'd already had changed my view before that. <laughs> and so that did not uh, affect mm -hmm. me and, and that I thought Good. differently about Good. that. So definitely personal. And we've housed, uh, I share about this in the uh, remarriage after divorce, three views that Mark Strauss edited in the personal questions related. They, they asked you to do application cases and, and we housed one, um, two different people actually trying to help them get their marriages back together and learn pretty quickly that we wanted it more than they did. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we, we learned that one we housed for four months and, and her uh, four or five daughters and the other for, for a couple of months. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, we, a, we got in there, we got in the trenches with them. All right. Let me ask you a question, Gary. I hope, let me do this. And yeah, then go for it. Um, we're all graduates of Dallas seminary, which means we're, dispensationalists, or from a dispensational school at least. And I remember when I first walked into Dallas Seminary being 
um, really overwhelmed in the student center when the words were emblazoned on the walls, observe, interpret, and apply um, the Bible. And as dispensationalist, it was drummed into my head, literal, historical, grammatical method of interpreting the Bible over and over. How do these interpretive tools, methods relate to the important texts that we look at on divorce and remarriage, especially in the Old Testament, but in the Gospels as well? And how does that drive our understanding of them? I mean, if you look at the Old Testament, these texts are written to a, a, a different people. It's not the church. It's written to the Jews. So how do these things impact and how do they, how do we find unity and say that these all affect Christians today? Does that make sense? Yeah, I think um, yeah, just the tools that we were trained with, you know, at Dallas, mm-hmm. um, for certain uh, historical grammatical method, um, extremely important. But I would say that uh, with the five views of theology book, uh, using the Bible to, to, to do theology, you do theology by going beyond the Bible to, to get these different views, these five views of theology book. It was edited by um, Gary Meters, Gary Meters. And um, I probably come to a little bit um, broader understanding of not just grammatical historical as the foundation, but my colleague, doctoral colleague, uh, William Webb, Bill Webb, uh, uh, wrote the, the, the book uh, Slaves, Women, and Homosexuals on the Redemptive Movement Hermeneutic. And to uh, take a look at the bigger picture, the bigger picture, the flow of scripture, how, how do we, how do we uh, allow, for example, uh, our theology to impact our understanding of a thorny and naughty, and maybe naughty, text like 1 Timothy 2.11, I don't allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over mm-hmm. a man. How, how, how do we, I would not use that in my own theology today of the role of women in the church. I would go to broader concepts, broader issues, and so on. But a historical grammatical method of that interpretation of that text would tell you uh, Paul did not allow women teachers at that time. Mm-hmm. Does do, do we apply it the same way today? I'm rethinking that. Well, what I was kind of referring to was um, like the Deuteronomy text and uh, um, some of the others in the Old Testament are written to Jews, not to the church today. And you have progressive revelation. And how does that affect our understanding of what this meant to the Jews? Does this have any impact on what it should mean to us today? Okay, I mean, I do you take point. that into relate? Yeah, like I see where you're going. Yeah, the Deuteronomy 24 text. I would often say um, married, uh, polygamy was permitted. Uh, the wisdom literature and the stories in Genesis uh, have, have quite a strong indication that that cause, causes problems. But polygamy was uh, permitted. Divorce and remarriage was permitted for multiple right. reasons in the Old Testament. You get to the new and Jesus severely restricts that Old Testament picture. David Dow wrote an article entitled Concessions to Sinfulness in Jewish Law. And it was kind of like you, you, couldn't, you couldn't institute or uh, um, require the standards for um, covenantal marriage that Jesus does in the Old Testament or God would have lost his following. <laughs> it would have been way too strict. They lived in a culture, in an environment that um, had to be incrementally led as as galatians 3 talks about the law as a tutor you know to lead us to christ 
there had to be these incremental changes. The Jews were were a part 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 parcel of their culture, and that Deuteronomy twenty four one through four law that Jesus is asked to uh, that the Pharisees throw back at him in Matthew nineteen and Mark ten was um, under assumed that the divorce bill of divorce was already there, and it's actually a uh, a law that regulates the remarriage to a previous spouse. Anyway, we won't get into that. But in Jesus's day, it's really interesting to then say, well, how did Jesus understand that text? He did not go back to that text to to teach his view. He went back to Genesis 127 and 224. So his view was already there in the Old Testament. He didn't have to come up with something new. It was already there in the Old Testament. And so when Shammai picked on the the word um, uncleanness and, and Hillel picked on the word any, some uncleanness or some indecency. And Hillel was the broad view and allowed divorce and remarriage any view. Shammai essentially took the view that Jesus propounded, but it was much more loose. He, he required, or at least inhumane, he required divorce, whereas Jesus would have forgiven 70, you know, times seven. So, uh, now Jesus is is speaking to a particular debate that the that the, that the, the two schools the Pharisees were having about grounds for divorce and remarriage, and that's why I think we also have to be careful of saying this one statement: whoever divorces his wife and marries another, except for immorality, uh, commits adultery. That was directed to a certain case situation in that debate. And doesn't cover all the grounds for divorce and remarriage. And Paul adds another one in 1 Corinthians 7.15, unrelated to that particular debate. So there must be other grounds. I wouldn't restrict it to two now. So maybe I have to change my view three times. <laughs> Gary? Yeah. Um, so let's get down to the nitty gritty here. I, I think we're kind of there already. But uh, from the early church fathers until World War II, uh, was basically the consensus was no divorce, no remarriage. Uh, the consensus of scholars after World War II was that there were those two justifiable uh, reasons for divorce, adultery and abandonment. Oh, boy. And then you have to get to the issue of whether it was an unbeliever, a believer. There's all kinds of stuff. So um, – it, would you say that those are the only two reasons now? And we you've alluded to that a little bit. Let's clarify that. Or, or there are there other justifications? Yeah. And then on top of that, do those uh, provide a justification for remarriage? Yeah, Instone Brewer is the one that alerted me to the rabbinic teaching that also explained Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 7 that the rabbis in Jesus' day, uh, based on a text in uh, Deuteronomy, I think it's 21, 10, and 11, allowed uh, in all the marriage covenants, uh, took these into consideration, uh, uh, allowed and and permitted divorce and remarriage for uh, um, material neglect and uh, material and emotional uh, neglect. And of course, everyone in the ancient Near East allowed divorce and remarriage. Uh, They always allowed remarriage. Mm -hmm. for adultery. Um, so are there other reasons? I remember in about uh, when I was doing my master's thesis on Jesus teaching abortion um, marriage, I came across a Psychology Today article uh, that compared um, abuse 
to adultery, the emotional effects of abuse uh, to as the grounds for divorce because it had the same kind of psychological emotional effect as adultery did. It was very interesting because psychology today and the conservative nature of it at that time was trying to, they, they kind of knew that it, it doesn't common sense tell you that that verbal and emotional and, and especially physical abuse would say, get out of that marriage. And they were trying to justify that as grounds for divorce because Jesus never spoke to physical or emotional abuse. And so it was so interesting to, to see what was going on with the psychology of this. And I would and I would say today, doesn't common sense tell you that physical, emotional abuse, and of course, back then in my first view, I would say, yeah, it allows you to divorce, but it doesn't allow you to remarry. But under my current understanding of the nature of covenants, conditional, volitional, that husband or that spouse, wife, who's ever doing the abuse, the husband or the wife, um, is violating the nature of that covenant. And now the, the person married to that person, they have to decide how much and how long they want to forgive, the 70 times 7, the um, other aspects of it. And to, to me, it has really come down. And there's a consensus between Keener, myself, Blomberg on this, and, and I'll just share with you, that the principle that unites the uh, divorce for adultery and, and divorce for desertion in, in uh, the two biblical exceptions are, one, both infidelity and abandonment destroy central components of marriage. Two, both leave an innocent party unable to save the marriage, like a double bind. And three, both use divorce only um, as a last resort. And so that becomes um, our guideline along with uh, Wayne Grudem's new piece that he first published in Christianity Today. And I ordered his book uh, about a week ago. He's actually turned it into the a divorce and remarriage text. And in 1 Corinthians 7.15, and, and he, he may have been moved to this by a personal experience because he talked about a woman that he knew whose husband was just treated her like dirt and horrible. And in 1 Corinthians 17, and uh, he it, it mentions, uh, let me get it right. At 1 Corinthians 7.15, it says, um, but if the unbeliever wants a divorce, let it take place in such circumstances. In these circumstances, the brother or sister is not bound. And he went and did. I don't know if this, I haven't looked at it personally yet, but he went and looked at that. Um, I think it's Casablanca. I can't know. That's in, that's, that's in Matthew 5.32. Anyways, he. Well, the he, question is, what does it mean? Not bound. Not bound okay. how? Okay. Yeah. And my first book, I said it, he, they're not bound to Jesus's command uh, um, uh, to uh, not remarry after divorce. They're, they're not bound to Jesus' command uh, to keep the marriage together if the unbeliever wants out. You don't have to follow them all over the Mediterranean to try to keep the marriage together. I now understand it in, in light of Instone Brewer's rabbinic and Jewish marriage contract work. And, and Keener's, that it's actually the reverse. Um, it's the negative statement of, of the Jewish bill of divorce, which says, lo, thou art free to marry any man, uh, any woman, any any person, 
the Jewish bill of divorce, well, it was given to the woman, lo, thou art free to marry any man. The negative of that is the brother or sister is not bound under such circumstances. I argued like crazy to trying to get around that that says, oh, you could divorce, but you can't remarry. And it's just not the plain reading of the text and the rabbinic background uh, details to all of this in Instrom Brewer's work makes it pretty conclusive that yeah. Paul is adding another grounds mm-hmm. remarriage. So are you saying that like Matthew 19 gives one exception of first Corinthians seven gives another exception and you're saying that abuse could be a third exception. Are these just examples of many reasons for divorce or are these three, the only abuse abandonment, and adultery? No, I say I, they say there's probably other reasons um, besides that. Uh, I, I had a, a saying in here that Jesus' divorce sayings were never intended um, to be understood. Let me ask you a question and about that. Absolute, absolute statements that admit yes. of no exceptions whatsoever. In Matthew 19, we all go to that. That's the exemption clause that, you know, adultery. Yes. But if you go and you look at the question that Jesus has asked by the Pharisees. The question is, is it lawful? So is he really giving an exception or is he answering it from their perspective? How, how does that play into it? It's very, it's very important that the question they ask is it's lawful because that's their yeah. mindset. That's what he's, con- that's what he's confronting. Is he really answering the question in the way that we understand or is he answering it from their perspective? Well, I think we have to say he's, he's answering it um, from their perspective. Yeah. So this is a legal, this yeah, is a lawful that, thing, Juris, jurisprudence. Yes, That's yes. why he's and answering it. I, I think he is. And in, 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 in Old Testament law, there were clearly valid and invalid um, divorces. The, the hate clause in Deuteronomy 24, and going back to your opening, um, mm-hmm. Salvo, I hate divorce. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ESV says um, that that hate, was the indication of a divorce for an invalid reason, not a valid reason. Erevat Davar, the uncleanness of a thing, the, uh, that was a valid reason for a divorce where the um, person who divorced did not have to pay uh, divorce money and got to keep the dowry and those other things. But the ESV translates in light of Gordon Hugenberger's book, Marriage is a Covenant, that I hate divorce. It's something to the effect of, man, I don't know if I have it right here, but it, it is more of the nature of um, the one who hates and divorces is is the one who's out of bounds. God is not saying I hate divorce. He allowed it in a couple of instances. Okay, that leads us right back to Matthew 19 which okay. says that he allowed it because of the hardness of their hearts. Right? Yeah, yeah. Can you explain that to us? What is, what is what does that mean? Yeah, the hardness of heart is clearly fallen humanity and that's where I guess my um, new view the um, uh, the view that I uh, moved to back in as at, at the year 2000. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's been 23 some years um, and even before that I started questioning. Uh, the hardness of heart does manifest itself throughout the Old Testament wider grounds, wider reasons, more liberties taken. Mm-hmm. Um, we have the indwelling Holy Spirit now. 
that is true. And we have this love relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and probably right. the number one reason that we are able to, um, yeah, not uh, uh, or to work, to keep our marriages together. And of course, I think it was Tim Keller who said the research tells us that two thirds of failing marriages, those who were going to divorce, if they waited out five years, um, they're going to succeed. Mm-hmm. If they waited out five years, they're going to succeed. But the hardness of heart has to be um, tempered now, as I think Jesus would be the one to lay the grounds for teaching this, in light of the indwelling Holy Spirit and this inner spirit of Jesus that lives in us, that helps us to obey, that helps us to forgive, that helps us to keep covenant faithfulness and loyalty, that becomes not um, selfish, but selfless in these relationships and focus inward on what can I do to help save this relationship? What can I do? And so for your hardness of heart, he permitted this, but has not been that way from the beginning. Yeah. Prior to the fall, Genesis one and two, no divorce and remarriage. And that's where the, the, this marital image in the Bible comes from. We go back to Genesis two 24, Adam and Eve's marriage. And if we hold that up as the pattern, the imagery for everyone today, no divorce, no remarriage, um, you're going to hell. Uh, if you remarry and are committing adultery for the rest of your life. And by well, the way, you know, I, I reviewed uh, and I, 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 I gave a fail to this. It was they had me be a second reader to a doctoral dissertation done in Australia. And the um, title of the dissertation was Matthew 19.9, A Deadly Exception. And this man was arguing, misusing Keener, misusing me, other oh people. He was arguing that people would uh, be yeah w- would would be dead if oh my if word. they if they divorced and remarried for the wrong oh reason. my goodness where's grace um all right so i'm just a simple man and i'm trying to understand this the seems to me that the teaching of jesus to a um a antagonistic pharisaical crowd seems to be different from the teaching of paul mm-hmm. to the church Hmm. I'm really confused by that. Can we? Is there a way to to put that together? Is the audience that is being spoken to determine what the teaching on divorce and remarriage is? Yeah, doesn't Jesus point him back to the ideal in the beginning? Yeah, it was supposed to be this way, but now the falls come and the hardness of your hearts. God allowed divorce. Well, how does that? Just- let me just interject yeah. something here, too, because to me, that's always funny going to the beginning, because really, mm-hmm. Adam and Eve didn't have anybody else to marry. So they were stuck. <laughs> in each other. If you didn't see that pattern, it was just, you know, there was nobody else. I like so. the goat over there. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Going back to your the audience, the audience. That's right. The audience question. Yeah, that's very interesting because um, Paul had to address an issue that Jesus never had to. He was on his missionary journey. He goes to Corinth. He, the early Christian missionaries preached the gospel. And these um, pagans, these non-Christians, one becomes a believer and um, one is not a believer. This is the 1 Corinthians seven fifteen situation. Yeah. And now he has to do with this, deal with a situation that would have never happened uh, in Jesus's ministry. Because the Jews learned full well that you don't marry outside of the Jewish race. And that's what uh, the Babylonian captivity and other captivities had led to. Uh, the Babylonian right. captivity pretty much uh, uh, 
cleared that area up for them and no intermarriage. Ezra, that happened, Ezra intermarriage there and Ezra and Nehemiah. And so, yeah, the audience all has to deal with a new situation. How about Mark's gospel? This huge debate. Did Jesus ever speak to the issue of a wife divorcing her husband? Hmm. Matthew only has the husband divorcing his mm-hmm. wife, but Mark is, is writing for a Roman audience. He puts the Hillel and Shammai debate way in the background in his narrative, even reverses who speaks Deuteronomy 24 hmm. and, uh, and, and cites that quote. Uh, it's fascinating to put the two in parallel columns. But Mark had to deal with a Roman environment where women could divorce their husbands too. And did he add the extra line? I, I lean toward that, that he did. But the teaching of Jesus would have taken you in that direction. The, the very words of Jesus? No, I don't think he referred to a woman divorcing uh, her husband. The, the, the voice of Jesus? Clearly there theologically that Jesus applies the same standards to women as he does to men. And Mark makes that clear by adding the extra line and the woman who divorces her husband and marries another. Mm-hmm. And why no exception clause in Mark? Uh, Keener has dealt well with that in other background studies. Um, Jewish marriage law and uh, Greco-Roman marriage law in particular demanded that a person divorce their spouse for adultery. If they continued the relationship, uh, sorry to be a little bit crass here, it was if uh, the husband was pimping his wife, right. making I- money. You mentioned that in your article. Mm-hmm. Dalliances. And um, they, so they demanded it. Jesus doesn't demand divorce, forgiveness. He says it can continue. It can be forgiven. It can, but he does allow it. Yeah, uh, I'm like Gary. I'm a simple man. <laughs> and... Um, when so what do you guys bring- think? What am I not making clear? I no, oh, no, 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 you're no. fine. No, you're when you fine. start bringing up the schools of Hebrew scholars back in the day, Hillel and Shammai. Yes, I apologize. No, 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 no. no, no. Pe- people that's don't get any of that. Um, and I'm always thinking about who's Jesus talking to? Who Who is Moses talking to? Who's Paul talking to? So how does these Hebrew schools and Jesus talking to Jews under the law relate to Paul in 1 Corinthians talking to Christians who are filled with the Holy Spirit. How does Hillel and Shammai's theology relate to Pauline theology, which if you believe in progressive revelation, he's extended Mm. and moved on from the law. He says the the law is basically done with. Jesus fulfilled the law. So how does that impact our understanding of marriage and divorce for the believer today? Mm. Yeah. Convoluted question. Yeah, I do believe Paul was very familiar with Jesus's teaching. Yes, for sure. And and that he, as a faithful, uh, spirit-inspired follower of Jesus, he has to apply the teaching of Jesus, just as we do have to apply the teachings of the Gospels and the New Testament to new situations in new contexts. And yes. the impacted the 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 content of revelation that we have in the new testament is our authoritative guideline for giving us principles for how to deal with that robert let me give you you an illustration though okay israel today could say 
in the Old Testament, God told us to destroy all our enemies and drive them out of the land. We're going to believe that, and we're going to go apply it, and we're going to kill every every person in Gaza and drive them out right now because that's what the Bible teaches to us in the Old Testament. That has absolutely no bearing to today. So how yeah, does what was, yeah. what was stated in Deuteronomy 24 to people under the Mosaic law have to do with us today? We believe in grace. We believe that God forgives so I understand that Paul knew all this, but didn't Paul change all the nuances of that? Sorry if I'm getting excited. Yeah. Well, um, in <laughs> Romans 7, um, I think around 13 or 14, mm -hmm. um, he is saying that he, he there are aspects of the law that we're still under. Um, he says that, uh, uh, and I, I view the Old Testament law as, as that's how an, an Israelite exhibited their faithfulness to the covenant by being obedient to that law. Mm -hmm. We no longer have to obey that particular law in the same way that, that the Old Testament uh, saints did because we are now under grace. The law was given through Moses. Grace came through Jesus Christ, of course. And so Paul, um, uh, yeah, it's amazing how much he, he respects the Old Testament law. He references it in 1 Corinthians 5, 1 and following, mm -hmm. when the guy is shacked up with his stepmother and Leviticus 18, 6 comes into view where or 18.8, which prohibits that kind of relationship. Incestuous relationships are out of bounds. It's, that's, that's still real today. And so uh, he takes the Old Testament and then he understands it through the lens of Jesus, just like Jesus did in the five, you have heard it was said, but I say to you mm -hmm. in the Sermon, yep. in the sermon yep. on the Mount. Mm -hmm. Yes. So, so he actually tells us how to interpret the law properly, and not to get around the intent of, of God's law in the Old Testament by by little crazy devices of our own, which which, which makes it uh, easier and gets us off off the hook. Yeah. In some instances, <laughs> but the law would have demanded that they be put to death for adultery, taken out in stone. Jesus doesn't say that about the first the young man in First Corinthians sleeping with his stepmother. He says right. put him out of the church. So yeah. we have See, the, the grace of God being demonstrated. It's not the right. application of the law. It's the it's the application of grace that's being forth put forth by Paul. Good, so, good thing. thank yeah. you for helping me with that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, I think this is going really. Well. I think this is going well. We're a little off script here, but that's okay. Um, yeah, get us back on, Gary. I'm I'm having a good time. <laughs> um, can we talk about one flesh? Yes. What is that? Uh, is is that part? What what kind of bondedness is that? In your in your uh, PDF that we have, we talk about it being uh, creating a a unit as, as if it's your own flesh and blood family. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, can we talk about one flesh and, and how that comes about? And is mm -hmm. that part of that whole covenant situation? And I guess, I guess it's, it's not in the article, but when I was reading it, I was thinking, well, what about just people who are having free sex? Does that make right. them one flesh as well? So mm -hmm. maybe we could talk about one flesh a little mm -hmm. bit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, and that comes up when you get to first Corinthians six and Paul uh, talks about the Corinthians who are tripping off to the temple prostitutes. And uh, talking about the horror of that for a Christian to do that. And then he has just the little phrase, it's Genesis 2.24, it's quoted four times in the New Testament. And one of them mm -hmm. is there in 1 Corinthians 6. 
And it's not in a positive sense, mm -hmm. but it's in an aghast sense. Do you yeah. not know that the right. two shall become one flesh? one flesh? And that takes us back to, uh, yeah, how the marriage covenant and one of our professors at Dallas put me uh, on to this. And um, Eugene Merrill, Dr. Merrill. Mm -hmm. Sure. He said the marriage covenant or the marriage relationship, that covenant became the basis for the Israelite understanding of their covenant relationship with God. And it wasn't the other way around that we understand the marriage covenant by God's covenant with Israel. It was the other way around. And so when we come back to that Genesis 2.24 text, what does one flesh mean? My original understanding um, and that Dr. Wenham, Gordon Wenham and I would, would propound in that first book was that the one flesh created a kinship. It's as if the, the couple was as literally related to one another as they would be to their own flesh and blood children. And that one flesh phrase is called the relationship formula. I read an article. I, I, I I read German at one point. Ooh. Their Wanschatz formula. Yeah. And, and I can't even pronounce it. It's called the relationship. And you will see this phrase, one flesh, used of, he's our own flesh and blood. He's our relative. Gideon, other people, he's our own flesh. And so I took that rather literally, but it was Craig Keener who pointed out, but a, a, a couple today that gets married comes from two different families. They are not literal flesh and blood, like their own children will be a mix of them. Mm -hmm. And that Gordon Hugenberger pointed out that the whole purpose of covenants, the Hebrew word writ in the Old Testament, mm -hmm. was an attempt to extend the loyalty that existed in families to non-family relationships, to nations that were at war with one another. And so... The model was, yeah, the family and how committed brothers and sisters and parents and children are to one another. How do we extend that to people who don't even know each other and are now coming from two different families? So it wasn't a literal extension of the flesh and blood, but it was the principle of commitment in families that got extended through covenant to nation and another nation. And so, yeah, when I do wedding ceremonies, uh, you know, I talk about these two are two different families, two different families, but they're going to become one flesh, a new family unit. That's essentially what one flesh is. This is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. You know, um, and she shall become, she's taken out of Adam. She, that was Adam's uh, covenant uh, vow that he made to Eve. It's not some, wow, she's a babe. It was, <laughs> I'm, it, it was, I'm going to treat you as if you are a part of my own flesh and bone. And Paul picks up on that in Ephesians 5, 28 and following, when he says, um, you know, do yourself a favor, love your wife, because when you love your wife, you love yourself. You treat yourself, you sacrifice for your wife, you, you treat her as selfishly as you would treat yourself. You direct all the selfishness, what you would do for yourself to her. That's what makes a great marriage. Mm. So yeah, the one flesh is is a uh, it's a new family unit, and you do everything possible uh, to make that family work, and to yeah. keep covenant, and to sacrifice for one another, and to be loyal. And you know, I finally come to the conclusion, you guys, after all of these years, 
um, of, of studying this topic that, you know, I can go out there and say, this is what Jesus teaches. Don't do this, do this. You're permitted mm-hmm. to do that. But none of that will matter if the individual is not, does not have a personal, vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, depending upon the Holy Spirit to uh, allow Jesus to live his life in and through you to confront your own hurts and wounds uh, from the past uh, with uh, counseling. And when, when you have anger at somebody, that's being triggered by some trauma or wound in your own life in your past. You need to deal with all those things in your own life and be as close to the Lord as you possibly can. That's what's going to make the marriage work. And sometimes one of those person doesn't do that as well as the other one does. And the person has to be really sacrificial. Other times the person refuses to, to do that. And that's where the marriage uh, busts up or makes it very difficult. Yeah. 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 We're at an hour here, Gary. Do you have, yeah. um, do you have another question? No. Well, I was wondering if we wanted to wrap up with what you started with in your own personal life, the practical implications for church leadership and get, uh, mm-hmm. get Bill's uh, thoughts on that. What do you think? Yeah, and could you also address the issue of unbelievers? How does biblical teaching um, impact unbelievers? And does it make a difference when all these things transpire in their life, whether or not they're saved or not? Mm-hmm. And how does it affect them later on in church leadership? That's And we can close with that. Okay. Yeah. Um, when I went back and, you know, Genesis one twenty two is a creation ordinance. We know that the first two chapters of Genesis mm-hmm. are part of the Mosaic law, but, but they're a- actually at a different level. Uh, in, in the Mosaic Law, than even the rest of the, not a canon within a canon, but there's no question that Genesis 1 and 2 um, are, are so important. And so uh, the marriage covenant and, and God's statement related to marriage was not given to Jews only, to Christians only, uh, to Muslims, um, to unbelievers. It was given to humanity. Um, mm-hmm. A man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and two will become um, one flesh. Even that statement alone is culturally conditioned because, um, you know, the man leaves the house, the woman, anyways. no, we won't get into that. <laughs> so, so how does that relate to, um, to church leadership and unbelievers who were French divorced and remarried before they came to faith? Mm-hmm. Well, I think Paul addresses that in first uh, Corinthians six, um, verse 11 and, and 12 and 13. And so when he talks about those who were, um, he has the sin list and in the sin list are adulterers. Mm-hmm. And he says, and such were some of you. There's no question that in the church in that day were married couples who were adulterers and had become Christians. People in the past divorced, remarried, and now they're married to somebody else, or they were adulterers and are currently, and they get married. Such were some of you. Uh, that that does not constrain their future uh, marriage. I do know some cases where. Non-Christians become Christians and they attempt to reconcile with their non-Christian spouse. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's pretty rare, um, but it can happen. And so I wouldn't hold that up as a pattern. I don't like to hold up rare instances as patterns for everybody. And uh, then when, when church leadership comes in, the husband of one wife, that's related to uh, a, a phrase that was even used in secular literature. But the husband of one wife, I, I have to agree with, with Keener at this point, that it, it, you, you're, you're faithful to the wife that you're currently married to. But if there are character flaws 
that led to a particular divorce um, that are not dealt with, then individual um, boards that are in the business of hiring a pastor or taking someone on, they have to know that that character flaw had been taken care of or something that was inept has been rectified. But it should not uh, should not keep someone from being a pastor. Yeah, we wanted to hire a very famous author who could have uh, here uh, at Taylor could have, and, and he attempted elsewhere. And as you said at the beginning, Scott, uh, the evangelical church at that point was a lot more conservative, and uh, he couldn't get a job anyplace. Mm. And he is the most amazing. <laughs> A spiritually attuned guy that that I could ever uh, uh, talk about. Well, I want to thank you for answering our questions, um, as difficult as they were, and uh, it's a difficult subject to deal with because it affects so many people in their lives. Oh yeah, and things have changed over the last 25, 30, 40 oh, yeah. years. Uh, the view has changed within the evangelical church, and those who have gone through the very difficult time and hurt of divorce. Uh, mm -hmm. They're look, being looked at more fairly and with much more grace than they used to be. I agree. I, I think mm -hmm. uh, having experienced that myself, I believe that's true. So mm -hmm. I want to thank you for 40 years of friendship and appreciate you coming on our podcast. And uh, I want to thank Gary for being with mm -hmm. us. And uh, Gary, yeah. do you have any other questions you'd like to ask Bill? No, I think we we're close? good. All right, we could go on and on with this subject. You, you, know you really can. You can. I'm very tired of this subject. Um, <laughs> I bet you are. I, I have to. I have to admit. Uh, I, yeah. I wrote this last one. I tried to have somebody else write it, and they said, "No, we want you to write it." And I said, "Give me a break." Yeah. No, I, so, I understand. Yeah, because it's not a happy topic. No. We want marriages to succeed, and we sure. want remarriages to succeed and do their absolute best. As well. That's correct. Well, let's pray together. Amen. Heavenly Father, I thank you for Bill, and I pray, Lord, for uh, his ministry in the future, that you will bless it and continue to use him, Father. And uh, we pray for him and his marriage, Lord, that he would remain faithful uh, until the end. And the same for Gary and myself. Help us, Lord, to be uh, exemplary examples of men who love their wives. Help us, Father, to preach the truth, to preach the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that he is a forgiving God and People can move on and and uh, change from the past and uh, walk with you in harmony and live for you effectively. Now we ask that you would just bless our evenings together in Christ's name. Amen. 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 All right. Thanks, hey, guys. Thank you, Bill. Really thank good. you, Gary. You're so welcome. Yeah. Yep. It's a privilege. I'll send you the I'll send you the link. Okay. Doc. All right. Blessings, right, you guys. Bye now. Take care. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Book Podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, like, follow, subscribe on any podcasting platform, on YouTube, on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Simply type in at hearthebookpod, at hearthebookpod. Thank you. See you next time.